Welcome to All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time. Our podcast offers friendly conversations with inspiring individuals in the autism community. All Autism Talk is brought to you by Autism Spectrum Therapies and the Learn AST Provider Network. Now, here is your host, Rob Howe. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Autism Talk. I'm your host, Rob Haupt. I'm a vice president at Learn Behavioral, uh, where we provide uh, AB treatment and related services to individuals with autism all across the country. Um, so we're talking to someone today who I've had the pleasure of, of talking to quite a bit in my, my day-to-day life, who I've been wanting to get on this show for a really long time to talk to us about advocacy and just the legislative environment. But before we get into our conversation with her and, and, and talk a little bit about uh, uh, her amazing story and background, um, you know, our, our, our show today is really focused in on uh, the regulatory environment, the legislative environment, how, how funding and, and advocacy has really changed over the years. And it kind of gets me thinking about what is happening right now in the present and uh, probably most of you out there have maybe heard a little bit about it, um, but there's major changes happening in the world of insurance, and most of them really impact providers. It's, it's really impacting um, how we set up our contracts with insurance companies, how we get things funded, and if we do our jobs well, you're never going to see any impact, any changes, any real uh discrepancy in anything you've seen prior. Um, but I, I think it's valuable to take some time and talk about one key aspect of this change, which is there are some changes to the terminology and and how we talk a little bit about what, what it is we do, particularly the role of a BCBA, that board certified behavior analyst in treatment, is going to change. And, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's, it's positive for us to talk a little bit more specifically about what is it that a BCBA does. You know, on this show, across the field, people have used this term supervision very broadly. And in, in the world of ABA, we generally have a agreed upon definition of what that is. But in the broader world of insurance or in the broader mental health or behavioral health world, supervision means something very different than how we use it in applied behavior analysis. So it's nice for us to actually use some new terminology to more specifically define what does a BCBA do. And and there's a few reasons for this. And and there's a few reasons why I think it's valuable for all of you guys out there to to know about these terms um, because it allows us to be – more focused, more targeted in ensuring that critical role of a BCBA is funded as well as provided. Treatment, um, as you keep progressing, are going to be protocol modification, reassessment, and family treatment guidance. So they break down into three critical areas that you probably have already heard. You know, protocol modification is very much synonymous with the time when the BCBA is directly observing with the technician and with your child, um, observing the program, modifying the program, um, giving feedback to the technician and direction on how to run that program. Um, It's something that I think we, again, have always directly incorporated oftentimes into supervision, um, but but want to define a little differently. Uh, Second piece is assessment. And 
I think we're all familiar with the term assessment, but I think a lot of people think of it as something you do at the start of treatment. And, and really taking the assessment concept further and saying, no, the assessment happens really every six months. And it's it's somewhat of an ongoing process every six months where we're constantly analyzing the data, updating the treatment plan, and documenting and reporting on that treatment plan to um, both our clients, patients, uh, families, as well as whoever paying for the treatment, um, as well as some, some other individuals who are working on to coordinate care. Family, family treatment guidance is just the new terminology um, that people have often used for either parent caregiver training, parent training. It's that really that kind of wraparound um, generalization training that we do um, with families to make sure that you guys are involved in the program and involved in the treatment and that the treatment doesn't just stop when, um, when the technician or when the BCBA goes home. So having all of this terminology, having all these definitions, I think is really critical for everybody out there because it, it, it just furthers the, the partnership that we need to have when we kind of are part of a treatment team. You know, just like we talk about understanding the terminology and the definitions behind uh, some of the procedures we do in ABA, it's equally as important to understand the terminology that some of your uh, insurance companies or some of the regulatory or legislative bodies are using because it allows you to better partner up with them to be able to get good outcomes. Just like it's critical to know what positive reinforcement is so you can be a good partner within the treatment plan for your child, the same thing is critical to understand what protocol modification is so that way you can be a good partner with your health plan to make sure that everything gets approved as it should and that services continue as they should. So this is a perfect transition to talk to our amazing guest who has really spent a considerable amount of time in this kind of regulatory, legislative advocacy world. Um, I'm really excited today to be joined by Amy Weinstock. Um, Amy has been just a true leader and trailblazer in Massachusetts as it relates to um, autism advocacy and insurance reform. She is currently the director of the Autism Insurance Resource Center at the University of Massachusetts Medical School, as well as an instructor in the medical school's Department of Psychology. In addition to having an extensive background on insurance-related issues with autism, Amy played a key role in passing several significant pieces of autism insurance legislation in Massachusetts, including the groundbreaking 2010 law requiring health insurance to cover medically necessary treatment for autism. And one more cool thing that Amy is doing is actually partnering up with, with some of our team uh, to put on a presentation for parents focusing in on how to access care through the different funding streams available through the state of Massachusetts. Um, to get more information about Amy's presentation, um, please reach out to information at advancesonline.com or reach out to the Advances Learning Center's Facebook page. Their presentation is going to be on January 31st at the Advances Learning Center in Wilmington. Hey, Amy, welcome to the show. It's great to, it's great to get to finally talk to you here in this forum um, compared to our kind of day-to-day -day or, or regular interactions. Thank you, Rob. I'm glad to be here. Um, so I, I, when I first met you, I, I thought the Autism Insurance Resource Center was like amazing. I, it, it's still, I think, almost a year later. I still don't know if I've kind of seen anything quite like it. Um, 
But for our listeners who aren't aware of it, can you kind of explain to everyone what it is and and how it came into existence? Sure. So we are a resource for the entire autism community, um, families, providers, educators, um, employers, regulators, sometimes insurers, on issues related to insurance coverage. Uh, We started, we are part of the University of Massachusetts Medical School's um, Eunice Kennedy Shriver Center um, here in Worcester, Massachusetts. And we were started in 2011, shortly after Massachusetts passed a law requiring private insurance to cover Mm -hmm. autism treatments. Um, And I actually worked on the passage of the autism insurance law and uh, was invited to direct this center and, you know, feel like it, it gave us gave me personally a, a front row seat to watch the implementation yeah. um, of our law take place. But more importantly, I think we've been a very, very effective and powerful tool in maximizing the impact of this law, which is similar to many around the country, and really um, help just thousands of people access treatments they would never otherwise be able to to get. You know, one of the things I think is really really unique about about the program and the center is you know you you talk to pretty much everybody like in getting to know people in Massachusetts and and, and kind of really reconnecting with with my roots there um I feel like everyone in the autism community regardless of where you stand they they know about the center they know who you are um you know how do you guys support such a diverse group of people from payers to the state to um, providers to parents um, to those looking to become providers. I mean, it, it's a very diverse group. You know, how do you balance out the needs of all these different um, folks who come to you looking for support? Well, we work very hard. Um, we're not a huge organization um, like any other nonprofit. We are a little constrained by the funding that we have. But yeah. um, because we worked on the um, insurance law, the people, the principals at our center did, and it was such a broad grassroots effort, we have an existing network, and we take particular focus to be present at um, events, forums, and opportunities to engage with uh, people and constituencies around the state um, and actually even beyond the state uh, to know about us and know that we're there. The other thing that's really helped our center, I think, is social media. So there are many um, channels that we are active in that know about us that, that refer us. So we've been in existence for about seven years, and our um, wow. use has just grown and our reputation has grown, and we're very proud of it. But it's it's really been a pretty organic, holistic growth, but... Um, we all have a lot of miles on our cars and uh, a lot yeah. of uh, dinner conversations that get uh, interrupted by phone calls. And, um, you know, we're out really seven days a week in the community, whether it's, you know, family at night who's struggling and needs advice or, uh, you know, conference of educators that we want to explain our, our work to. But we have some very um, focused channels that we work through, so we work Mm-hmm. Um, very closely with all of our uh, developmental disability services agencies, and mm-hmm. so all of the caseworkers around the state know of us and know of our resources. We work through all of the school um, special education parent advisory councils um, 
so that they are aware of what we do. Um, and then all of the major clinics and hospitals, and you know, some of them kind of joke with us, they keep our phone number on speed dial. And then um, Massachusetts also has, we are fortunate to have a large number of behavior analysts and some very good yeah. um, associations, and um, we get a lot of exposure to them through through the membership in those organizations as well. You know, how have you seen, I'm, you know, sometimes I kind of think about, like, how does it always work? Um, I have to assume that in the seven years you've seen kind of maybe the law itself hasn't changed, but maybe how people are kind of, like, enacting um, the the practices within it. I mean, how have you seen that change, and, and has there been kind of specific channels that you just described that really kind of drove those changes? Well, it's changed radically, and it's expanded radically, and uh, some of that is external forces, and some of it is natural evolution. So when the law in 2010 was passed, it was called ERICA, an acronym of way too one of we use way too many. Um, it covered private, fully funded, state-regulated policies, and it was probably about 25 to 30% of people in Massachusetts had access through it. Mm -hmm. So it was game-changing because it really put autism treatment on the map. It was the first law that really required insurance to cover ABA in any form. Mm -hmm. So it was it was huge, but it was a limited benefit to a finite group of people. In 2015, another law was enacted that expanded that coverage to the Medicaid population, which brought another big chunk of people um, with access. And then um, there are federally regulated private insurance policies that have steadily kind of come on board, and today a majority of them are. So in 2011, when we started, sometimes the only assistance we could really provide to someone who called was just explaining to them that given the current insurance they had, they were sort of out of luck in terms of accessing some mm. of these treatments. Yeah. Maybe there were some alternatives, but they were pretty limited in, in how they might be able to maneuver. And today, really, everybody who comes to us has a way of accessing this treatment. It may be different depending on what you have and what you need and what your circumstances are, but it's really broadly, broadly expanded. Um, with that, the complexity has obviously expanded as well. Yeah. But it's... It's gratifying to see that we can really help almost everybody today access this coverage. I mean, you mentioned the complexity, and that's exactly where my mind went right away. Is you know, Massachusetts is one of these, you know, relatively speaking, a state where you can really find a lot of access to BCBAs, access to good providers. There's a history of providing treatment to individuals with autism, both through some pretty large organizations, some really great local providers, but now you have this whole new level of complexity of funding that, you know, 15 years ago when I was when I was providing services in the state, like, we, we just didn't have. I mean, how, what kind of challenges has that provided or, or, or created within the community? Well, I think for... I'm going to start with the provider side because I think it's had some okay. pretty profound implications. Um, yeah. Providers really need to have both um, 
knowledge, scale, and infrastructure to operate in this environment and deliver quality care and have the right things in place to make sure they get compensated and reimbursed for it. And so yeah. um, that's just requiring a skill set and a knowledge base that wasn't required. And I think when many behavioral analysts went into this field, yeah, yeah. that's not necessarily what they signed up for. And some people, um, th- I, I want to say really, you know, take it on and it's a great challenge and they thrive on it. Some people find it completely overwhelming. Some people figure out how to maybe get that expertise by either, you know, outsourcing yeah. it or, or or acquiring it. But um, it's just changed the profession and the operation operational needs. Um, for families, mm-hmm. it's... Um, I wouldn't say it's easy because despite Massachusetts having more behavioral analysts per person, uh, the demand is huge, um, partly because yeah. there's knowledge that this is available. And yeah. um, it's it's the demand and it's families, you know, both finding providers um, and making sure that they're getting quality services and figuring out exactly how they are going to access them because every family situation is different. Everybody, the good thing about insurance today with um, a lot of laws besides this is we don't get calls from people who just are uninsured and have no insurance. So everybody has some insurance, and it may give them right. different avenues to access it. It may also have different barriers depending on it. And so many families have to either get secondary insurance, look for alternative coverage, um, either to access treatment or to afford the coinsurance and the other costs mm-hmm. that go along with it. And so insurance is is hard just to begin with, but we kind of like to joke that, you know, when we started, we were a bunch of, you know, great, determined advocates and professionals, and we ate a lot of pizza and drank a lot of beer, and we got a great law passed, and it was, you know, <laughs> pieces of paper and people had insurance cards um, and then yeah. there were all these regs that were inches of paper but how that actually translated to um, autism treatments you know a therapist coming to a house and giving treatment and getting compensated for it you know none of that was in place it, it all had to be built yeah. and so um, that was an interesting process yeah, yeah. which required more, I mean, more pizza and beer but, um, but right. also some tech technical skills and resources that that we needed. And the industry had to figure it out. Um, the insurers had to figure it out. I mean, really, we were all kind of growing up in this together. And, well, that, and I, I would say that been. in Massachusetts, you know, not only, you know, have, have we been really fortunate in um, having our, um, you know, really strong legislation, really strong support, um, a very um, good proactive um, division of insurance. Um, But our insurers, I think, really made a good faith effort to figure out how to deliver this treatment. And, um, you know, if you remember back in 2011, um, there weren't even CPT codes for um, this treatment. And I'm talking about ABA, which was a new treatment. And for um, people who aren't sort of insiders, CPT is the holy grail of medical billing. I mean, if you don't have a CPT code, you can't even start. And believe it or not, in some states, you know, with laws and with regs and with great people and everything else, that 
one little technical issue could be enough to hold up um, treatment in Massachusetts. The insurers got together. They said, these are the codes we're going to use. It was just, you know, published and it was not, um, you know, it was was treated procedurally, but it, it was something that we've seen in other places be really big barriers and here, here it wasn't. So we had a lot of infrastructure and pieces that went well together. But then still a lot of questions and confusion. You know, autism is not diagnosed with a blood test and it's not, um, you know, measured with x-rays and and progress can be sometimes uneven or lumpy and medical necessity can be sometimes a subject of debate. Um, and, you know, these are, mm-hmm. are people and they're complex and this is a neurodevelopmental disability, so um, it can be a pretty fascinating process to watch and to evaluate and to figure it out. I mean, what's always the, the complexity of, of all of this, you know, the the fact that you've got so many different kind of perspectives, and now you have all this complexity of insurance types. I mean, that's what's really impressed me about the Resource Center um, from the get-go, because it, it almost seems like you guys are able to serve a little bit as like the bridge or like the glue to all of these different folks. And you know, practicing in other states, having, having been in other states, you know, we don't see that. I've seen, I've seen the desire to create entities like that. You know, I think here in California there was talk about a, an autism task force being created in 2011 to, to essentially to do all of that, and it just, it just never really stuck. And it, it just seems to, to knowing the system just seems so critical to a parent. And you guys almost seem like you provide that like unbiased look. Here's the channels. Here's the system. We're not giving you the provider perspective. We're not giving you the payer perspective. We're really not giving you any perspective. We're giving you information and some coaching to navigate it. And that and that just seems very unique and very valuable to that parent who says, here's what I've got. Help me figure out how to get help for my kid. Well, I think that's accurate. And I think value is is the key thing. We, um, mm-hmm. we did an analysis a few months ago that you know, showed yeah. for every hour of assistance we provide, it's translating into about $10,000 of services for somebody. But wow. we take a very simplistic approach to what we do, um, despite mm-hmm. I think we've overused the word complexity, so let's not use that word anymore. Yeah. Um, but sure. in a simplistic level, the way we look at it is everybody who comes to us, everybody who maybe doesn't come to us, and that frankly keeps us up at night more sometimes than the people who do, mm-hmm. um, is going to hit a wall in this system just by the nature of mm-hmm. it. And so when people come to us, whether you're a provider or you're a family member or have another role in this, um, you usually come to us having hit a wall. And first thing we look mm-hmm. for is a door, and for a percentage of people there's a pretty easy door, and we just show you where the handle is, and you open it, and you go through it, and we now hear from you yeah. again. And for others, we need to find a way around that wall. Um, and sometimes the ways around that wall aren't, too pretty or easy, so then we look for a way over the wall, and sometimes, you know, we just have to get a bat and beat the wall down. And it's simplistic, and, you know, we can joke, and, you know, getting out the bat to beat the wall down takes effort, and, 
degrees of pain and suffering, and sometimes the cost-benefit isn't there, but that's the approach that we take to all of our work and mm-hmm. all of our cases and everything we do. And so that's, I think, how we maximize our effectiveness. And mm-hmm. we never give up. If somebody decides it's not worth their time and effort, that's fine. But sure. um, I think I've been accused of being impatient, um, and I tell people I wasn't born with a patient's gene, but I definitely think persistence is, is part of my, my DNA, um, as well as all the people who work in our center. Yeah. yeah you, we, you mentioned supposed to, and that was actually kind of in, in a weird way where I was going to go next, but in a different way is, and one of the things I've kind of seen in other parts of the country where, where I've been um, is, you know, we, we, we talk so much about insurance and it becomes kind of like the big payer talk. And, 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 Yes, there's the complexities or the the nuances of this type of insurance versus that type of insurance, but it almost kind of takes over the conversation of where help and resources can be found. We, I, I find that you know people throughout the community, regardless of you know provider, parent, uh, resource, whatever, we almost kind of forget there there are other resources out there. There were other. Um, funding streams or avenues to provide support and people have almost sometimes forget, hey, sometimes it's good to do this and that or sometimes it's good to do this and then that. Um, You know, I think in California about um, the regional center and and how they've they've historically provided services and, and continue to provide certain things through early start Families oftentimes transition from that to insurance, to some combination of insurance and maybe some some services through their school. Um, I'm curious, you know, how has that has that been an issue in Massachusetts? Have families or or providers or whomever um, started to become very focused on the insurance side of things, or is there a good, healthy collaboration um, across all these different kind of uh, regulatory uh, provider types, funding types, however you want to kind of look at all of that? Well, I think we've always viewed insurance as one tool in the toolbox and one way of accessing treatment. And as you said, it's broad. So particularly Massachusetts, in addition to um, having a lot of other resources has, I think, really good school services and really good yeah. infrastructure there. And one thing we were very cognizant of a decade ago when we started um, advocating for legislation was not to do anything that would make that harder for people. And despite it being really mm-hmm. good, it still often requires lots of advocacy. So. When we talk about looking for a door and looking for ways around walls and stuff, sometimes it's not an insurance solution. Sometimes it is best for a variety of reasons um, for somebody to be looking towards getting assistance through their school or our um, early intervention program covers a lot of treatments. Our Department of Developmental Services has a waiver program for children Mm -hmm. with autism, um, it, so there's a number of different different ways, and that's why each person's situation is unique. And I, I remember several years ago I was asked to speak um, by a school, um, by a BCBA who was working in a school, to 
the parents in his school um, about insurance, and I could see that it was beyond many, many of these families um, who came. So they came to the presentation, and I could explain how insurance worked, but these were um, largely um, non-English-speaking people. They were in Mm -hmm. a part of the state where it was going to be hard to find this kind of treatment, and um, not just the navigation, the supply, and everything else, and I saw the challenges, and Mm -hmm. I finally, you know, just said to the the host, I said, you know, I think your parents have to realize that, you know, maybe where they really want to start is looking at what they're going to get in their school and in their IEP because that was really, just from my assessment, probably the best way and the most practical way for many of these families to access treatment. Um, I think it would be different today because this was many years ago, but um, sure. But you have to sort of do what's right you know, for everybody at the time. And the school still might need to come back the next year. (laughs) Because, you know, this is expensive. I'm not going to lie. And um, before we had these laws, it was all on the schools. And part of why I got into this was my experiences as a parent of a young adult and just seeing how hard we had to, you know, advocate for our child and and how much schools were doing this. So um, this has been great for providing some alternative channels, but it doesn't change what schools are required to cover. And so what was, you know, free and appropriate public education in 2008 is the same thing as it is in 2018, despite all these laws coming through. And many times that includes, you know, a lot of autism services and ABA and Mm -hmm. other things that people seek through insurance. Has there been any changes in the... the, um in kind of access to like rather early diagnosis or kind of early intervention. I know, you know, one thing I've heard, and, and I hear it kind of more of a sprinkling, and I don't know if I've heard it across like an entire state, but, you know, I hear certain communities like here in California, some families have said, you know, yeah, you have more funding to get the treatment itself, but getting started has gotten harder um, because there are so many it's almost like because there's more doors, it takes longer to figure out what door to go through to get started, and it's not only harder than figure out, but sometimes you have almost like a, a little bit of a gridlock in that door itself to to get through. You know, has that been in, an impact, or has that been a, an issue at all in Massachusetts as as it relates to kind of that early detection and early intervention? Um. Well, access to early diagnosis is something that many people in our state have focused on for a very long time and continues to be just a critical need. So there's the awareness, there's the education, and then there's the supply. Right. So I can tell you, as the parent of a 21-year-old, it was not easy to get an appointment to get a diagnosis 18 years ago. Um, It's still... Mm -hmm challenging today, but I wouldn't say that insurance has made that harder. Uh, the thing I have seen perhaps is that I think on the part of professionals and some families, um, in prior generations, that diagnosis was often imparted with 
a sympathy that you know you'd been given a little bit of a hopeless prognosis and mm-hmm. with the treatment and with the opportunities today i think that mindset is shifting so there is um some of the the fear and avoidance and stuff that might have taken place many years before is maybe a little bit less prevalent people understand that this isn't mm-hmm. something people necessarily want, but there are ways to deal with it, and there are paths forward, so um, they can do that. But um, it, I think the demand for diagnostic services has also increased the same. Mm-hmm. The prevalence has increased. The demand has increased. The whole system is just mm-hmm. pretty uh, pretty busy is the only way I could yeah. characterize it. I do see the clinicians in Massachusetts particularly who are some of the most compassionate people, um, you know, really working so hard to address that. So, you know, a young child who needs that diagnosis to access those services, they will work really, really hard to get in to see them and to get that and to get things started with them. Yeah. You know, with, you know, we we focus kind of on on so much of, of what you guys are doing, and and um and, and a little bit of the history of of how this has all evolved. I'm, I'm kind of curious to get your thoughts on on kind of a little bit of that crystal ball. Like, what do you see as the kind of the future leads us to? Like, are there are there critical areas that you see are maybe either challenges that lie ahead, or issues that we really need to kind of really put additional focus in on to make better. Well, I don't know if it's because I'm a little myopic and I have a daughter entering the adult system, but I see a whole framework and a whole infrastructure. We can discuss how it's working um, for younger children and students coming through school that has been incredible, and not just insurance, even before insurance. And I see a whole generation of, young adults transitioning into the adult world who have skills, who have abilities, who have expectations, who are capable and want to work and function in society that just this didn't exist 20 years ago. And they need support. They're still going to need supports and they're going to need um, mechanisms and services to help them continue and maximize that potential. And I think that system... Mm-hmm hasn't quite figured out how to deal with that um, in a systematic way yet. So we see some great models and we're looking at those, but um, that's to me the next frontier. And I hear, you know, criticism people say, you know, all you see with autism is pictures of cute little kids and you got these people growing up and they're still great people. And I think some of them are still really cute, but, um, it's not just little kids, and we sure. do see in some less informed and less enlightened people a, a thought that you know this treatment works until you're age X, and then it doesn't, and it goes away, and you don't need it anymore, and that's just not true. So where we see a lot of the disconnects is in that, but I also see mm-hmm. a huge amount of potential. I see some really incredible people who I think mm-hmm. can really change the world with some of the unique characteristics and traits that come along with being on the autism mm-hmm. spectrum, uh, but they need a link and they need something that's going to help them maximize that. And that is a little tenuous and 
not quite as well defined today as I yeah. expect it will be in in the future. Do you think? I mean, I, I'm, I'm thinking back. You know, we're talking about Massachusetts, and and we're talking about adults and young adults, and I, and I and I go immediately back to being a young behavior analyst, not even being a behavior analyst yet, but just young in the field of ABA, and 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 that was. I mean, that was my job is I worked with 15 to 22-year-old um, young men, and we did behavior stuff, and we did some academic stuff. But a big part of, of, of what I specifically did was really focusing in on kind of preparation for adulthood. Um, and I, I had a number of, of job sites that I attended that I would participate with, and it was – it was an amazing experience, and I kind of I, I kind of think back like those are the memories that come to me first um, before the the cute little kids. It's you know with a hairnet on my head with an 18 year old serving lunch in a cafeteria like that's that's really truly my first memory, and that when I think about kind of early successes. Um, but at the same time, I, I don't know if I've seen any real outcomes of of what we did. I know the individual outcomes of what we did. Um, you know, coming from this state-funded kind of central resource center that that you're a part of, you know, how critical is it? Do you think for us as a as a field or as providers to almost put together a here's what we accomplish? I mean, is is that something you see missing? Um, or are there other barriers to help figuring out, like, what is that right path or system for these types of services? Well, I think measuring outcomes is huge and not easy to do. Um, yeah. We can measure costs. Um, right. We hear a lot about that. But you're right. It's it's a It's a huge thing. And I think the work you've done was great, but I think you're probably in the minority. Um, right, right. Where I see those services being delivered, but highlighting that and explaining how that works, and I think if there are behavior analysts listening, you know, you almost need like a PR campaign to um, publicize that and how important that mm-hmm. is. Gotcha. And how, how gotcha. critical it is. So, like. Agree a thousand percent, but I don't have any great answers of how to do it. No, it's it's it's, it's a, you know I guess that's why it's the the area for us to focus on the future. It's like that, it's that thing where we we want it, but like how do you like you said like outcomes are hard, and how do you kind of put this together and make a good uh, presentation of what it is we're really doing? Um, I, you know, I struggle with that all the time myself. Um, well, I you know, we're, we're, again we're go up. back to simplistic analogies. So I, yeah. um, when you know people talk about you know, ABA, which is one of the more widely prescribed and utilized treatments, has so much misinformation about it. And one of the biggest myths mm-hmm. that I see from people who aren't as knowledgeable is it, it's just for little kids and it evolves, you know, sitting at a table until you point to yep. blue and then you get an M&M and then you go off and play or whatever. And that's just such a limited aspect, but particularly when I talk about adults and it, it's not even just people on the autism spectrum or other disabilities, you know, I always say, mm-hmm. you know, ABA is just, and this is my layman's interpretation because I'm not a professional, is 
reinforcing desired behaviors, and it works really well on husbands. You know, it's like, hey, you did such a good job with the dishes, honey. Look at the trash. It's, oh, would you like me to take that out? It's just not that different. Um, but um, And I get in trouble for that, but um, that's, you know, kind of how I view it, and, and I think we need to kind of take that and take that many steps further to really explain the potential and the impact and, and how that works. Hey, look, you, uh, it may be simplistic, but you actually described my morning uh, as it related to the dishwasher and making breakfast for my daughter. So, you know, <laughs> it, it, it's real. It, it, it is pretty accurate. Um, this may be the part you have to edit out of the podcast, but okay. Um, no, no, I tell her, I, I will. I look. I, I, our listeners know we we don't edit this type of stuff out. I mean, look, it. I, I I'm of the belief that this is. You know, we we we've made this over generalization due to, you know, the 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 research due to funding due to just kind of where the. I guess, you know, media or the society is kind of starting to look at autism and, and talk about autism. But ABA really is about human behavior. And as someone who did not anticipate ever going into ABA or working with individuals with developmental disabilities, you know, I, I have a history background. And so when I look at ABA and, and some of what you just described, you can almost take it to a macro level and look at you know, let's analyze you know, what happened in the American Revolution and how did this event lead to this other event and how did these these behaviors or, or events impact other behaviors um, of people in the community and society. And, and I think it's just, it, it is it could be so simple as you said or it can be more complex and, and really be these like formalized treatment plans, but that's, that's the the benefit of the science. That's what's kind of kept me in it for for now, getting pretty close to twenty years. So uh, no, I well, I'll say I, when it's I about the dishes too. When I started becoming aware of ABA twenty years ago, you know, I was coming at it as a parent, and it was helping my daughter tremendously. But I was also working in banking at the time, and in banking, you know, huge part of your compensation comes from an annual bonus, and I remember looking at that and thinking, you know, this is a pretty screwed up reinforcement system because I would see the behaviors that mm-hmm. people did and things they did to maximize that annual bonus that you might say was not always in the best interests of uh, the clients they were serving or the institutions mm-hmm. that they're working for or the shareholders of that institution, those institutions. And when I look at some of the financial crises and things that have happened in that field, I trace it back to um, bad behavior that was reinforced by what I think might have been a misguided reinforcement system. So it had nothing yeah. to do with, with autism or anything else, but definitely an application of behavior analysis. And I really better get away from this right now because I'm so out of my wheelhouse. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. That's, that's yeah, how well, I interpret it. Look, I, I think uh, I personally love – Anytime anyone is talking about behavior analysis, whether it's like spot on or not, the fact that we're talking about behavior analysis and we are treating it as its own thing, like I, I think that's amazing. I think, as you said, I agree with you. A PR firm would really be beneficial for ABA. We, uh, you know, sometimes we we talk so much science, and it's more um, impactful to be able to have people say exactly what you just did because it's uh, that's really what it's about. 
Thank you. Um, well, I know we're coming up on time. I just wanted to, to thank you for being here. Um, you know, as I said at the top, I, I just I think what you guys are doing is just incredible. Um, I think you know, it, I, I can't help but kind of look back, and, and I was chuckling about what what you were saying about the schools in Massachusetts because I I have so many friends who started with me at jobs, and now they're BCBAs at at public schools all across the state and and to see kind of a resource center like yours really help everyone in the community kind of move forward in, with this evolution of kind of funding and services and, and bringing people together is just is just really amazing and so um, I'm just so glad we got to talk to you and, and share a little bit about what you guys are doing and, and what you guys have accomplished because it's it's pretty special well thank you very much for very proud of it and feel privileged to have the opportunity. You know, every time I talk to Amy, I feel like I just get this amazing wealth of information. You know, Massachusetts is in many ways a very unique place, and, and a lot of the structure and regulations are very specific to it. Um, but there's always a lot of parallels that can be pulled out to other states, understanding some of the changes um, that have happened within the Medicaid system there has really helped educate me in terms of understanding how it can impact Medicaid in other states. And, and as I've worked with Amy this last year, I think we've found vice versa. Information we've gotten elsewhere has helped kind of fuel some, some efforts she's had in Massachusetts. Um, and so as just so advantageous to be able to listen to these different perspectives, particularly on the funding and, and legislative side, because learning from each other on this is, is so critical. Seeing those trends and, and really the precedents um, are so helpful when we're trying to fight for these causes, whether they be on terminology that we talked about at the top of the show or just within the legislative efforts um, for those of you out there who are fighting for just improving access. Um, so if you're in the Massachusetts area, if you're in the Boston area, I highly recommend going to hear Amy speak on January 31st out at the Advances Learning Center on Wilmington. Um, it is just a great opportunity to hear how to navigate the specific system um, that Massachusetts has established, as well as to really generate a bit of a roadmap um, for the long term, which I think every family benefits from. So as again, uh, if you want more information on the presentation, please go to the Advances Learning on our Facebook page or email um, information at advancesonline.com. Thank you all for being here. Um, we will talk to you next time. Take care. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of All Autism Talk. This podcast is brought to you by the Learn AST Provider Network. You can listen to previous episodes at allautismtalk.com, on iTunes, and on Apple Podcasts. All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time.